This evening's talk is about equanimity. And we'll begin uh, together this evening as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama. So settle yourself in your seat. You can let your eyes gently close. And if you listen and carefully take this in, you will find all seven factors of enlightenment in place within this being that we're sitting with under the Gotami, under the Gotami, under the Bodhi tree, Siddhartha Gotama. So sitting under the bow tree with the bodhisattva, this just about to be Buddha. On that now famous night as he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation, exploration, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, open-hearted presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, the mountain of equanimity. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. The sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the very good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season. 
any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's quite clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of forms of life are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy. But it only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or it isn't averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of upekka, equanimity. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice, a force, a powerful force in the whole of our life. And in the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's one of the four brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings, and those being metta, unconditional kindness, loving-kindness, karuna, unconditional compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and those being mindfulness, investigation, investigation of states, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And upeka is also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana, one being one-pointedness, ikagata, and the other being equanimity, upeka. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained full awakening, full enlightenment, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night, with an evenness and 
balance in his very relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there in his amazing grace, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, pleasant or unpleasant feeling that's associated with the arising, changing, and passing of internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu or a yogi or meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka, the Pali word upekka, is onlooking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, 
without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw, playing on the teeter-totter with another, chi- with another child. That point of balance when each of us were suspended in mid-air up on the seats of the teeter-totter. There was always a, a certain kind of happy and really almost breathless feeling inside of me when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully, and these are his words. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of really great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt into a cup of water. Because of the very small container, the water will be extremely salty, very harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water, such as Gaston Pond, which is around the other side of the three-mile or three three mile or so a loop walk here at IMS in the forest refuge, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness, watery spaciousness that the salt has been put into. 
And as we all know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart which, with which we can meet, with which we can look on at all of life's everyday experiences as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our deep practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality, So, what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three immeasurables, the other three divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, and the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, as well as the arising of other states such as patience and faith, that they are all met, that they are all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the monastery cook, the tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring this um, teaching very immediately close right here and now in relationship to our amazing cooks, our amazing tenzos here at the Forest Refuge. And, of course, also into our life when we're back home. And these are Dogen's words. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dhamma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. 
There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Now this next part from Dogen comes from his time and culture. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouths should be the same. (laughs) There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? A simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit. And we find that the mind is tranquil and serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. Maybe it's breath, a metaphrase, sensation in the body. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated. But rather, it's interested and appropriately energized. At, that, at those times, there really isn't any interest or any necessity in exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state, the blossoming of the factor of equanimity thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time and culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. He said, one is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. Well, certainly more likely, um, in our case, the metaphor might be uh, one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity at a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and we're able to know, to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by, and take it in with ease. 
this quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the development of concentration, mindfulness, metta, and the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught or mired by the various habits of mind that can stop things up, such as various habits of clinging, attachment, and identification that can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and insight to blossom, to deepen, and to eventually mature. We begin to experience a a growing equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states such as patience, confidence, and metta. They act in conjunction with each other. And as we all know from our own experience, that until equanimity is really, truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago now, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the divine abidings. Silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again through these whole two weeks. First directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the phrase, I am the heir, or I am the owner, of my kama, karma in Sanskrit, kama in Pali. I am the owner of my kama, or the heir of my kama, meaning the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, evenness, and neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, well, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) If this was a Zen sashin, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. Mm -hmm. 
But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, (laughs) I was startled in true Vipassana fashion. An equanimity test, Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers. Although then it was actually from all five of the teachers that were uh, teaching that retreat. And it said, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Now at that point I was not teaching Dharma. Not teaching at all. Well, for a moment my abiding equanimity flew right out the window. My heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in the window of my heart. I can't, I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart and mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test. Of course. And I can do it. And I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center, for the staff, for the teachings, for the practice, for the Buddha. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. But again, until equanimity has matured, we lose and regain our balance, our equipoise, over and over and over again. The practice and development of Upeka as, as a divine abiding, as a Brahma-vihara, has a very important effect on the other three divine abidings. So just a, a few very brief examples. The even-mindedness, the spacious stillness, balance, and radiant calm of equanimity stabilizes the positive effects of metta, of compassion, of empathetic joy. Equanimity gives metta love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty, and it endows it with the wonderful great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an unwavering courage and, some, and fearlessness, 
which then enables us to directly face what might be some enormous happiness or some degree of, I mean, unhappiness, despair, some degree of anguish in relationship to both physical and mental pain, as well as other kinds of suffering in the world around us and within our own personal body-mind experience. And lastly at this point, equanimity in relationship to mudita, in relationship to appreciative or empathetic joy, brings in even-mindedness and balance, which actually protects our mind and heart from getting lost in a kind of blind, giddy, self-centered joy. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can sometimes manifest as guilt or disapproval or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment, if you will, of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity is arising, has arisen, and is developing, in those moments, fear and Resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval, they subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's really nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what is called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. A mouthful. Worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life, seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish 
infatuated ordinary man or woman, in the untaught ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama or karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. Well, the Buddha, when he taught, was quite wonderfully direct and straightforward and very succinct in his teaching. He, he never minced words. <laughs> he just said it directly. So, a personal story. When I first began uh, living in Taos, New Mexico, um, I became quite aware uh, as I was walking down the one main street in Taos that there were very many beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows along this street. And at times, as I was looking, walking along and looking in the windows, I would get quite infatuated with what I was seeing. And sometimes getting caught in the delusion of wanting what I was seeing, and even sometimes thinking I really needed what I was seeing. That very painful contraction of the must-have mind. I must have this. So I decided to make a practice of it. So I practiced walking along the street and looking in the windows many, many times and watched the process of my mind. And eventually, after a while of practicing this way, I began to really just simply appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing with tremendous appreciation for the amazing creative capacity of human beings. It was a great relief, actually, when that started to happen. The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself being taken, I think it was in London, by a friend uh, to a place uh, where there were many small shops on this particular street that had, uh, were filled uh, in the windows with uh, these little tiny mechanical parts, um, which is of a particular interest of his. He has kind of a fascination with small mechanical workings and things, parts. And he said that he had this very strong inner feeling as he was looking in the windows at all these little mechanical parts of wanting them all. And then he said he realized that he had no idea what any of them were for. (laughs) I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of maybe some degree, subtle degree of greed, dislike, resentment, anger, fear, disappointment, the kind of glossing over, the ignorance, meaning ignoring these states, pretending to ourselves 
the pretense of equanimity, the oh, it doesn't really matter attitude, or it's really all just fine way of thinking, or I'm totally okay with this situation. I'm absolutely totally okay with this person. With this being accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away, a slight contraction that we may not be aware of. This, of course, is not equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upekka. And of course we all know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or resentment, it's really difficult, extremely difficult, if not absolutely impossible, to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Opeka is based on attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness or indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's really the result, one of the fruits of our practice the fruit of training the mind, the heart, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that we encounter in our mind, certainly here in retreat, and that we certainly also encounter coming, coming to us in our life outside of a retreat setting. These vicissitudes, or as they're called, the eight worldly winds, are praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. These come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources the resources that in fact have been developed through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will all always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that is, I've been told, maybe still occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice. 
but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one whose body they chose to rest on. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And will also possess the power of renewing itself only when it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring with you this evening. That as they develop, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, are the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama or karma in Sanskrit. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, in this lifetime, and on, back, and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring, we could say, out of the womb of Kama. 
And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us in some way and in some way inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. And so we can say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is really due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or our reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes or wishes for ourselves and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic seeming or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. And we begin to know through our practice that we can change our mind. That in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we really clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to really be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and really a growing courage 
to perform more wholesome deeds right now. Even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very, very good deed, the best really. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's really been important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always, always the right time to perform wholesome actions. Always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Many of us have probably been conditioned to say, been told, well, too bad, it's too late. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge, really. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we begin to have the strength to endure more and more when we need to endure. And we begin to more and more be able to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us really with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving, our own delusion, and our habitual tendency to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and our healthy resistance. Uh, A wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of 
a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. And the Pali word for this is tanha, which is often uh, translated as thirst. So the fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from being in the grip, caught in the grip of insatiable thirst. So the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. And from this perspective, there's no one, no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid, static self, a separate, solid me that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance, consider this in relationship to your own experience. If this or that aspect of your personality, some particular quality of yours is criticized or blamed, do you feel and think, I am blamed? When this is our thought, equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something we've done, and we think, I've been praised, I'm a success. Equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or maybe isn't praised in the way we want it to be, and we feel and think, my work has failed or I have failed, equanimity is shaken again. If wealth or a loved one is lost, or our aging body no longer seems to be who we think we are or who we have always been, we may think what's mine is gone or who I am is gone and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which itself couldn't be quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's quite easy to detach oneself, or at least somewhat easy to detach oneself, and gradually work up to the possessions and goals and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. 
the first time that I taught here at the Forest Refuge, and I was the uh, very first visiting teacher here, was for two months. And I was here long enough to really settle in, and yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got here, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, <laughs> which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was some degree of tension uh, and stress in this. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many uh, others who would be using the house over many years. At one point, I was told it was okayed that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) So at that point, there was kind of a pretty quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. And I relaxed, and I really, truly felt that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not. Because it really wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. Well, during that two months, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. The Forest Refuge housekeeper came over and brought the rug catalog for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly was not a rug for me. It wasn't my house. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed there was such a different experience in the heart with this. Not that subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness and a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing, and it was much more fun that way. So the small things, first, that we think are ours, And working up to giving up or letting go of, relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's, it's, and this is an important part, it's the thought of these things being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought that these are who I am, these being who I am. This is what we give up. This is what we let go of. Beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance, and then very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to various emotions and beautiful and aversive states of mind that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the uh, former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, There's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? 
can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including positive emotions or various aversions and specific gifts, which we might regard, might be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am. To whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter the heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a separate, solid, static self, in those moments, How could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or grief or fear? Thus the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama, and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of samatha practice and blossoms in a profound way as the deeper states of concentration occur. So, for example, as one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, the purity of equanimity and mindfulness pervade the body and mind. And in the words of the Buddha from the Anguttara Nikaya, just as if a woman or man were sitting wrapped from head to foot, with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of her or his body to which the white cloth did not extend. Even so, the yogi sits, permeating his or her body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of his or her body, entire body, unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. The fourth jhana, which is the height of equanimity through the samatha practice, is a remarkable state in its simple spaciousness and acceptance. The extreme level of imperturbability would be astounding, actually, if there wasn't such pronounced imperturbability. This state of equanimity is the most restful of the four deeper states of concentration, which are called jhana. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, it isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness but really out of a fullness or completeness of connection and understanding. And at some point in our practice, 
Equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, concentration and insight or understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. All of this occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste, the single taste of awakening, of liberation. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the dangers of the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight or understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one's heart and mind, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. We sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable, really inevitable, that the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kamma, we could say. And I'd like to close uh, the talk this evening with two short pieces uh, from the Udana, which are the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When his or her mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? to him. And the second piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming 
nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly together for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.